Welcome back. Hi, this is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, and my partner Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman and I are going to take on the pretty arcane but terribly important concept of basis, particularly for income tax purposes. Elizabeth, well, <laughs> is, is basis like, uh, is that something that you, you read about when you're having a hard time getting to sleep at night? I was going to say, wow, Robert, basis is a topic that could go so many different directions. When I think of basis and I think of some of the work we do as estate planning attorneys, I often think of the discussions that we have about whether or not something has been valued before the date of death and after the date of death, consider whether or not something would get a step up in basis for income tax purposes, meaning that something might have a value one day when you purchase it, but a different value for tax purposes the date you die. So let's uh, let's explain that one of the reasons we care about basis, and we care about basis more than we used to, is because of the pretty much elimination of the estate tax. Now only the very largest estates are subject to estate tax, and that allows us to focus instead on the income tax effect. Everybody knows if you inherit property, you don't have any have to pay any income tax on that inheritance. Anything you get from somebody else on their death is in Oh wait, that's not quite correct. There are some kinds of things that might have an income tax consequence, particularly annuities, retirement account, those aren't the things that we're going to talk about today, however. We're going to talk about this concept of taxable gain and the tax basis that's attached to a property. Elizabeth, can we start with uh, what is basis? Forget death and, and estates. Uh, why do we care about tax basis in calculation of income taxes in the ordinary course? Well, basis is something that we have to consider when we're calculating capital gains or a loss. So when I think of basis, I think of the value of something that I purchase for tax purposes, the date that I purchase it. So if I bought a house today, Robert, and I paid $100,000 for the house, the basis as I just, of- I wanna know where you're living. The, <laughs> the basis as of the date of purchase would be $100,000 because that's what I paid for the house. So for income tax purposes, it's worth $100,000 the date of purchase. And then over the life of the time that you hold on to that house, and maybe we shouldn't use a house, we should use raw land because if we use houses, we confuse things because of the special treatment that residences get. Under, under tax law. So let's make it raw land. You purchase that 100,000, it's also, it strikes me, way more likely that you can buy a, a piece of, of raw land for $100,000 than a house. So that piece of raw land that you bought for $100,000, you hold on to for 30 years. During that time, there may be some reason you get to depreciate it for, for uh, mineral rights or some other reason. There may be some things you put on the land that, that you pay for, maybe you build a building. All of those things go to adjust the basis over the life of, of your ownership of the property. And so Robert, sometimes people come to us and they say, well, I'm getting ready to sell this piece of land. 
and we talk to them about whether or not they've conferred with their CPA about the tax effect of the proposed sale. So for instance, Robert, if in this particular example, the date that I was going to sell the property, the purchase price that the new buyer was going to pay me was $200,000, all of a sudden, there's quite a bit of difference there. So $100,000 worth of proposed gain on that sale would be the kind of thing I would need to talk to my CPA about. And that's, of course, assuming that there haven't been any adjustments to the basis. None of those improvements or depreciation or other things have happened. So yeah, you're going to be taxed, Elizabeth, on $100,000 of capital gain. Now, remember that capital gain gets preferential tax treatment, at least long-term capital gain, so as long as you've held it long enough and and it only takes a few months to to get to long-term capital gain. Uh, and, uh, And it's going to get preferential tax treatment but it's not going to be tax-free. You are going to pay the tax on, in your in our scenario, about $100,000 of gain. And that's one of the reasons why people often hold on to property. It doesn't have to be real estate. It could be, ta- it could be stocks and, bo- well, not bonds, probably. It could be stocks or, uh, or other kinds of investments. It could be art. It could be a, uh, a gorgeous uh, picture, uh, a Matisse that you bought for, $400,000 in the 1960s, it's now worth $5 million. If you sell it, you're going to have a capital gain on that sale, and you're going to pay the, the income tax on, the, on that gain. Robert, in this particular scenario, what would happen if instead of selling the property, I decided to make a gift of the property to you during my lifetime? Thank you very much. I accept. But remember that this concept of basis is a purely tax-driven concept. It is what is my basis in the property is a, is a calculation of what I paid for it, or if you give it to me, what your basis was when you gave it to me. So you bought this $100,000 piece of real estate. You give it to me. It's now worth $200,000. My basis is $100,000. So if I immediately sell it, that would be ungrateful of me. But if I did immediately sell it, I'm the one who's going to pay the capital gains tax on that increase in the value. So Robert, does this scenario change if I die and my trust leaves this piece of property to you? It does, dramatically. And that's the core question in calculating basis. The current U.S. income tax law says... If the property is includable in your estate when you die and I receive it from your estate or from your trust, and and that's a key point, by the way, if I get it from your trust, but your trust is includable in your estate for estate taxes, even if your estate doesn't pay any estate taxes because your estate is less than the 11 plus million dollar exemption amount this year, even though it doesn't pay any estate taxes, I get what we call a stepped-up basis, not your purchase price, but the value on the date of your death. Now, there are a couple of wrinkles when that number gets changed a little bit, but to keep it simple, let's just say I get the value, I get a basis of the value as of the date of your death. So in our scenario, you bought the the property for $100,000. It's worth $200,000. You die. Please don't. But if you did, and you left it to me, I would receive it with a $200,000 basis, 
nobody pays the income tax on that gain between 100000 and 200000 Wow, Robert, what a way to transfer wealth. Yes, in fact, that's why people often hold on to things that have highly appreciated. Not only are they, are they suffering from the golden handcuff problem that they, can't, they don't want to take the, the income tax hit, they also have their eye on the notion that if they continue to hold it till they die, their heirs will never have to pay that income tax. So, Robert, can I put a little wrinkle here in this hypothetical? What happened if, if you and I both owned that piece of vacant land together as joint tenants with right of survivorship and I died? So let's be very clear that you and I are not married because that's going to change the answer a little bit. But I like starting with us as an unmarried pair of investors. We bought the property for $100,000. Let's keep it simple. We each contributed $50,000. We hold the property as joint tenants with right of survivorship. You die. I now have the property, not by your will, not by your trust. I have it by the operation of the joint tenancy. I get what's usually referred to as a 50% stepped-up basis. And it's a little bit of a complicated calculation, but it's not that complicated. The property was worth $200,000 on the day you died. Your half interest was worth $100,000. I get that $100,000 basis, and I put $50,000 into the original uh, purchase, so I get to keep my $50,000 basis. My new basis in this very simple hypothetical scenario is $150,000. If I immediately sell it, because it was really always your property and you're the one who thought we were going to build a house on there and raise horses for a living, I knew that was a pipe dream. So I sell it right after you die. I'm going to pay the capital gains tax on $50,000. Wow. So I can still transfer some wealth that way. You can, and and, and if you think about it, you've transferred all of your wealth to me. The other half interest that doesn't get a stepped-up basis, I already had because we were joint tenants. Now, what if I had put down $20,000 and you had put down $80,000 in that original purchase price? Well, the answer is going to be a little bit different, and I don't want to bog this down in in uh, too many calculations and the opportunity for me to get the numbers wrong on the fly. But let's assume in most of our conversations that both members of a joint tenancy or multiple members, it might be that Jackie Mingle, our third partner, she might have contributed $33,000 to that purchase. And now she and I own it because you've died. I like the way that I get to kill off my partners in the sequence that I want to. Uh, that, uh, that, that uh, we each get a stepped-up basis for your one-third interest in the property under that scenario. Because you can have multiple joint tenants. You can have 55 joint tenants if you want to. So then, Robert, I'm going to add one more wrinkle. This wrinkle is going to make Rhonda Fleming and Doug Freeman very unhappy. (laughs) But let's just pretend you and I are a married couple. That changes everything, and, uh, and particularly it changes everything in Arizona or any of the other community property states. So the basic rule in a non-community property state is the one that I described before. If you and I were married, we bought the property together as a marital property, we contributed equally to it, and you die, I receive it by joint tenancy or by operation of law because I'm a surviving spouse, we get a 50%, I get a 50% stepped up base in it just, basis in it just as if we weren't married. 
But if we live in a community property state and we hold that property as community property, there's no good logical reason for this. And, and people who try to explain why this is true, there is actually a good logical reason, but it doesn't actually make sense. Um, and so if you try to explain why it's true, you get bogged down in the explanation. Just accept that it is true. If the property is community property, I, as the surviving spouse, get a 100% stepped-up basis. So if your spouse in, in Arizona, California, Texas, any of the community property states, if your spouse dies, everything you receive from the spouse, at least so long as it was community property before their death, you get a full waiver of the income tax effect on any of the growth during the life of your spouse. Wow. So this... This is pretty important rules to understand, something that I know I've spoken to my CPA about because I've had questions, and it's not something, Robert, that we often pontificate on when we're working on a larger estate administration. Typically, we will work with a CPA and our client on these kinds of questions because they really are quite intricate and, and demand some attention to detail, particularly when we start to look at things like appraisals. Absolutely. And and as, as you note, appraisals become a key question because if you and I are married or not, we own property together, I receive it, uh, but I'm going to hold on to it for another 15 years. I think it's a good investment. Well, when, when I try to give it to my children, they're going to care about what my basis is in the property. Or if I try to sell it, I'm going to need to know the basis. And as a consequence, I'm going to need to know the value of the property on the date of your death. I can probably get an appraiser to value that piece of real estate as of 15 years ago when you died, but it's way harder than to get an appraisal to value it today. So that's one of the reasons why even though there's no estate tax, even though there's no probate proceeding, even though there are no other heirs who care, we often insist that our clients get appraisals on property that they receive from from an inheritance. And Robert, I think that this is, can be one of the stressors for people after a spouse dies. People get oftentimes pretty frantic about the time frame to get an appraisal. And a lot of that depends on whether or not an estate tax return is going to be prepared for the spouse who, who died. And so the details around what is time sensitive and what is not time sensitive, um, this is something to ask your attorney about and your CPA about. And there's another wrinkle to just mention. We're not gonna try to resolve it today because we don't know the answer. But one of the reasons why we are really focused on basis and capital gains these days is because there are proposals in Congress, there have been discussions about changing the, step, the automatic stepped-up basis, changing it in one of several different ways. It may be that uh, when the dust settles, you won't get that automatic 100% stepped-up basis for property that you receive from a decedent. So we all have to kind of keep our eye on that potential future. Um, it may really unsettle the way we think about, uh, about taxes and estates. Well, Robert, thanks for talking about basis today. I routinely have questions about this. It's something that we really need to slow down and think about. If you're somebody who is listening and you have questions about how on earth this relates to your trust, your revocable trust, or an irrevocable trust, those are great questions to bring into the office. This is also, by the way, the reason why we ask on our intake questionnaire for estate planning, do you have any property that has appreciated substantially in value? 
That's exactly what we're trying to get to. Do we need to talk to you about basis? Do we need to make sure that you understand that if you have charitable inclination, giving things to the charity that have a low tax basis might make sense. If you want to give things to your kids, giving them cash rather than the things that have low basis might make sense. That's why we ask those questions. Well, Robert, I've learned something new today. Uh, Of course you haven't, but thank you for playing the shill for me. This is Robert Fleming. I've been chatting about basis with Elizabeth Freeman, my partner, and uh, and collaborator on these Elder Law Issues podcasts. We are two of the partners at Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. We love basis and we love guardianship and special needs trusts and estate planning and all the things that we talk about. We hope you will come back for our next episode when we will talk about something that we hope you will love as well. We'll talk to you then.